So, now back to Genesis 36. Verse 1. Genesis chapter 36, verse 1. You can take out your Bibles, get your phone, get your tablet. And if you get on the website or our app, by the way, all the notes I'm using will be on there. You can track the verses, the verses on screen if you're new. It's an easy way to kind of listen to what the pastor says up here on Wednesday and the weekend. Let me read verse 1 and 2 for the rest of us. It says, this is the account of the family line of Esau, that is Edom, or the Edomites, as we'll see them called also later. Verse 2 says, Esau took his wives from the women of Canaan, so these would be the pagan wives we read about a few chapters back. Then it's going to list their names, Ada, daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna, the granddaughter, I'm going to focus on that in a second, granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite. Also, Basimath, daughter of Ishmael, and the sister of Nebaioth. Well, in many translations, some of you may even have a Bible that lists it this way, granddaughter is listed as daughter. In other words, she's the daughter of two different people. A lot of people have said, well, how can that be? What happened? Well, a lot of Bible scholars, as I was researching and wondering myself, they think probably she was more like a, a product of adultery. In other words, her mom had an affair. Another guy was her biological father, but her family in the house raised her. That would be her second dad. So she kind of had two, two dads. And that's kind of because some people like question, why is, you know, why is all these typos in the Bible? They're not typos. There's usually always a good explanation, just like I'm about to hit another one, because I just read you a couple of names. Let me read them again. Ada... Oholibama, and Basimath. So it lists three wives. Well, if you were here back a few chapters ago, when 26, and I'm going to put that one on screen to refresh our memory, the names aren't exactly the same. Let's read that one. It says, when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, whose name we didn't even see here, daughter of Beri the Hittite, and also Basimath is there again, daughter of Elon the Hittite. Doesn't quite match that version, though. And then it goes on to say, remember his parents didn't want him to marry pagan women, and they were both, both these wives, and because he had married them, were a source of grief to his parents. People have kind of wondered, how come the names don't line up? Well, if you remember how I read verse 1, it's the, uh, the family line or the lineage, and the way they would record lineages if you had sons. Judith never had a son, so it's like in their minds, she doesn't exist. She's not listed as the lineage. That's why she's not listed. And the other reason about the Basimoth thing and the, the kind of the name change, Basimoth is a very common name because in our verse tonight, she's listed as Ada. And I'm going to call her, for lack of a better term, Basimoth number one because there's really two of them. It's a common name. It's kind of like Dave around Calvary Chapel. <laughs> there's a lot of them. So think of it more like that. It's, it's not a typo. It's not a mistake. It's not, you know, God's word not lining up with each other like some, you know, unbelievers might try to twist to. But this Ada or Basimath, however you want to see her, she really wasn't a nice lady. It's, I'm sure why they grieved his parents that he married her. Because here's what she did. Um, there's not in scripture, but there's Jewish documents that document kind of some of this Jewish history. She built places or, you know, a place to go to, to to do pagan worship. And not just that, she also set up idols. So she built the place, she furnished it with idols, and so she led people away from the one true God. Worse than that, probably, um, she was also what they used to call a, t a temple prostitute at these same places. 
So not only she built a terrible place, she kind of did terrible things while she was there herself. That's not a very good wife for your mom, is it, you know, to, to look at fondly. So that's why the, his parents weren't happy about that. Then this other Basimoth, what I call Basimoth number two, her name in our older verses back in chapter 26, if we'd have kept reading, actually it's over in chapter 28, excuse me, she is called Mahalath, and it tells us that she is Ishmael's daughter. So same lady, different name, just think of her as a Dave, maybe that'll be easier, like I said. But Jewish tradition has a lot of stuff to say about some of these same characters, and it's not in Scripture, so we don't consider it God's Word. It's more like a historical word, like we would call a history book nowadays. Jewish tradition says Esau had more wives even that's listed in both those verses. It was somewhere between three to six, at least three, possibly up to six. And that history, if you ever heard, there's two books called, one of them's called the Midrash, one of them's called the Agadah. Those are Jewish historical records, and they're both recorded in there as being three to six wives. Here's what else it says in there that's not in Scripture. This part I'm not so sure about, but it's what the Jewish tradition says about Esau. Their tradition says that Esau plotted with Ishmael, and we know the story of Ishmael. I'm not going to tell it to you again. And they had a plan to do two things. The two of them kind of got together, Esau and Ishmael. Marry my daughter, that way you'll inherit all, when I die someday, you'll get all of my wealth. <clears throat> and then go murder, not just Jacob, go murder Isaac too. Wipe them both out, you'll have all of that wealth. It's a way for you, Esau, to inherit both family, you know, things. But that's just in Jewish tradition. There's no proof of that. Doesn't really matter tonight, by the way. It's just kind of interesting backstory, sort of. Let's get back to our text, the, the real truth as I'll call it. Verse 6, here's what it says. Um, and I'm going to skip verse 4 and 5 if you're wondering why I went to 6. Verse 4 and 5 just list names and lineages. I'm going to skip a lot of lineages tonight just to warn you because we're going to do two whole chapters, which we normally don't do. But here's what 6 says. Esau took his wives, however many it was, and sons and daughters, and all the members of his household, all the workers, helpers, slaves, etc., as well as his livestock, all his animals, all the goods he'd acquired in Canaan, and he moved to a land some distance from his brother Jacob because both of them had a lot of property and animals and stuff. Verse 7 even tells us that. If I keep reading, it says their possessions were too great for them to remain together, mainly because the animals wouldn't be able to graze um, appropriately because there are too many of them. And Because it, it even says, if I were to keep reading and quit stopping, the land could not support them both because of their livestock. Lack of food. So Esau, that is Edom, settled in the hill country of Seir. So think about, remember when Jacob kind of stole the blessing, if you will, with the skins on his arms and pretend to be Esau? Esau got upset and said, Father, bless me. Where's my blessing? And he kind of said more or less, I'll paraphrase, well, I can give you a blessing, but it won't be good as your brother's. He kind of stole that one. But he did bless him, and we see by these verses, he did get blessed. He has so many animals and, and stuff, he had to move away and get out of the area. It just wasn't the spiritual blessing that Jacob kind of acquired, we'll call it. But these Edomites, God always saw them as kind of his, I don't want to say second favorites, but they were protected from being seen as all the rest of the pagan nations. Let me read you, I'm not going to put it on screen, but here's what Deuteronomy 23, 7 says. 
and these are God's words, it says, Do not despise an Edomite, for the Edomites are related to you. They descended from Esau, so they're like your half-brothers and sisters, is what God's saying. So don't kill them, don't wipe them out, because we all know, and we'll see a verse tonight, where he says, wipe out certain groups. Some of those ites I always make fun of sometimes. These Edomites, though, if you look at history, um, anybody ever heard of the city of Petra, the rock city of Petra? It's pretty famous. It's got a very narrow entrance. It's been said historically that around 10 or 12 men could defend it against a whole army. And it's in right now the country of Jordan. So if you travel over to the Middle East, you can go to Jordan, see the rock city of Petra. Likely most of us won't go to Jordan, so you can go home and Google it. And then you'll see it's, it's a pretty impressive, it's really like a historical wonder of the world in a way. It's part of the, the time it was inhabited, we don't know who built it. It might have been even these same Edomites. They definitely lived there. Verse 12, we're going all the way to verse 12, so we're jumping down again. I want to, I want to focus on one more name in this lineage. Esau's son, Eliphaz, also had a concubine. So he had a wife plus a concubine. The concubine's knife, uh, name was Timnah who bore him Amalek. Amalek, does that ring a bell? Amalek, Amalekites, same people group. These were the grandsons of Esau's wife, Ada. She was the pagan that did all the bad things, temple prostitute. These Amalekites are not good. They're not protected like the Edomites were by God. They're always bothering and killing and fighting Israel. Let's look at a verse from Exodus. You'll see what I mean. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Then Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men, go out and fight these Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. I'm not going to read the whole rest, but if you remember that story, remember there was a big army, they were fighting, and as long as Moses held the rod up, they would win. But he couldn't do it forever. I mean, go home and try that with a broom for a while. In about 10 minutes, you'll be done with that much less hours and hours with a giant rod like he probably had. So his kind of disciples came alongside him and held his elbows. And then they would win again. The minute that he got tired, they would lose. So they had to prop him up. They were fighting that whole battle, and they did win, by the way, against these same Amalekites. They were always bad people, always fighting and attacking Israel. Later, if you remember the story, I'm going to paraphrase this one too, by the way, Saul, who was King Saul at the time, was told to wipe them all out. They're so terrible, get rid of them, kill the men, the women, the children, and the animals. That was God's instructions because they were terrible people. They did terrible things, sacrificed their own children in hot, you know, idol, like heated up idol statues, things like that. But Saul didn't do it. He claimed he did, but if you read the scriptures, he kept some of the best livestock, some of the best money and possessions. And he let the king named Agag live. And he was told, get rid of everybody, exterminate them. Then he comes back and says, I did it, I did it. Then the prophet says, then what are those animal noises I hear, buddy? And, and he was kind of busted. That's when he lost his kingship. Because in the scripture, it's really sad if you read that story. It says, the Lord's presence, he removed his presence. And Saul never even knew it. Then it kind of shifts over to King David. Last verse, 41, the last half of the verse. This is the family line of Esau, the father of the Edomites. One last thing before we jump to the next chapter. You also know, by the way, you may not know who it is, but you know the story of the very last Amalekite. 
They do get wiped out, not exactly how they were supposed to because of Saul. But not long ago, we covered the story of um, Haman and Esther. Remember that story? Haman is the last known surviving Amalekite. Because he's listed in Scripture, you'll see him listed as an Agagite. The king, if you remember the Saul story, who he let live was called Agag. So Haman, Agagite, last known Amalekite. We know what happened to Haman, right? His evil plan backfired, and he ended up getting hung. Then they were done for good, just like God ordered the whole time. So let's move on to the good chapter. That was sort of the bad news, all the messy you know, Esau stuff. We finally get to Joseph. Who's ready for Joseph? Yeah. Some people have been waiting on Joseph. I know everybody has a little favorite section of Genesis. A lot of people's is sort of from right now going forward, the next few weeks, months. And by the way, it'll be January before we ever finish Genesis, so hang in there. Genesis 37. This is where Joseph's story starts, and we'll see that pretty quick. Genesis 37.1 says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. And I'll point out when we get there, but once again, this is sort of a lineage too. And if you think about scripture, lineages aren't always kind of chronological. We'll see a name coming up that we learned chapters and chapters ago passed away. And you'll see it when I get there. I don't want to tease you, but I'm not going to tell it yet. We'll see. But this whole chapter is mainly about, there's other characters, but it's mainly about Joseph. And here's some things to remember as we go through the next few weeks. We all know Joseph had a lot of adversity. We're going to see a big one tonight when he gets thrown in the pit. But all this adversity he went through never discouraged him, didn't change his character. He really didn't change because of it. And on the other hand, when he gets down to Egypt, remember, he gets in Potiphar's house. He's elevated fairly quickly had a ton of success, sort of success very early in a way after he got there. None of that early success ever went to his head, made him prideful or ruined him. He just stayed the same Joseph. And here's, I think, one of the biggest keys. He was the same man in private as he was in public. He didn't behave differently behind closed doors. His character was pretty stellar. He had a little bit of problem, and I'll point that out in a few minutes, but it was minor at best. He truly was what I would call, even up to now, some of these other patriarchs, we've all seen them, hadn't we behaved badly, behaved badly over and over. Joseph has the smallest behaving badly of any of them, and I would definitely make the case for that. So that kind of sets our stage. Let me read a few more verses, the second part of two. It says, Joseph, a young man of 17, so it tells us how old he is now. He's still a teenager, so we'll give him a little grace because he's a teenager. He was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. Other verses call them concubines, by the way. And he brought their father a bad report about them. So it seems, based on this verse, 17-year-old Joseph is sort of what we would probably call a tattletale. He's kind of lived a privileged life. We'll see pretty quick. He's a favorite. And he's probably likely spoiled, and he goes out in the field to check on them just to go tell on them. He's there to tell. And you think that wins him any favor with his brothers? If they're the rough, tough, shepherd, you know, manly, woodsy guys, and here comes this kind of household favorite pet of the father, 
He is not winning brownie points being a tattletale is how I would put it. Because look what verse 3 says. Now Israel, and that would be Jacob a few chapters ago, but this is Israel the man, not the country, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. So he had a favorite. That's not good. More on that in a few minutes. Because he'd been born to him in his old age. But he wasn't the youngest. He was just, I guess, born in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. You ever heard that story? Probably since you were in, you know, this knee high. Many of us, though, have learned that verse. I did, you did, likely most of us did. Joseph and the coat of many colors. Exactly. We don't always translate so hot. <clears throat> if you really look at how it should have been translated, it really translates to long, ornate robe. Not coat of many colors, like somehow we got it over to. Long, ornate robe. And I remember, you know, Sunday school books showing long stripes of all these different, like a rainbow coat sort of. They probably couldn't even have dyed it like that if they'd have wanted to. They didn't have the, the, all the plants and berries and stuff to do that. It may have been colored, colorful. But the main idea in this description is long. That's what we kind of miss sometimes probably as kids. And here's why. Think about who would wear a long robe, kind of like royalty or a king, a prince. He was the prince of the household is probably a good way to see that. The fact he's wearing a long robe means he's not going to work. You can't work in a robe like that. All of his brothers, if they had a tunic, robe, tunic, you know, bathrobe, whatever you want to think of, they would have been more, you know, hip length. You could work in those. You could shepherd and do stuff in the woods. Long, ornate, kingly robes are for people sitting on couches with long fingernails, you know. And so, once again, they didn't like him. Spying on him is he doesn't even do any work out in these fields. He's got that long, silly robe on like he's a prince. We don't like our brother is, I'm sure, what they thought, and you'll see that pretty quick in Scripture. Look what it says in verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, likely with this princely robe. That would be a great visual reminder. Hey, we don't have one of those. How'd he get that? Oh, he's the favorite. You can just almost hear it in your mind, them teasing him. They hated him, it says in the next sentence, and could not speak a kind word to him. So they were mad and mean and didn't treat him well because of it. So look what his father caused. This is all, I'm sorry, on Israel. This favoritism is not good. It's caused dissension between the family. It's going to lead to conflict. And really, we know the story. I'm not telling you something you don't already know. It's going to lead to attempted murder. Which brings up our first main point. Really, there's a verse and a main point. We'll see how our media team puts it up. Oh, two at once. It's a bonus. That's what I was hoping for. Romans 2.11 is the verse. God does not show favoritism. If he doesn't, look at the next part. Why should we? If God doesn't show favorites, and this is, in this story, it's, it's the son, but really, that's really a blanket statement, I think, for all of us. We can have a best friend. That's okay. That's not what we're talking about. But if we favor and spoil and treat people differently based on who they are, their status, some reason in our mind that we like them better, it's going to cause dissension and arguing, and just nothing good can come of that. That's why God is not a fan of that, and neither should we, especially, especially 
when parents favor one child. That's almost the worst because you're setting them up for a lifetime of dissension. And really, once again, I think it goes back to Israel or Jacob, however you want to see him. Let's keep reading some of the famous part. Joseph had a dream. Joseph has a bunch of dreams. Um, he might should keep them quiet, though, but we'll get to that in a second. When he told it to his brothers, look what it says. They hated him all the more. They already hated him. Now they hate him even more. Because look what he told them in verse 6. Listen to this dream I had. We were all binding sheaves of grain out in the field. Probably not in your long, ornate robe there, Joseph, is what I would add. They might have been binding grain. He says, we. When suddenly my sheaf rose up, stood upright, while all of your sheaves gathered together and bowed down. That's a pretty clear message that I'm the king and you're not, isn't it? Joseph might have had this dream, by the way, but I would make the case since we know Joseph's story later. You know, we know how it ends. Think about when there's a famine in the grain in Egypt. This is almost like foreshadowing of that moment. Grain, famine, bowing down. He's in charge in Egypt. The brothers don't know it. It's likely more like what I would call a vision than a dream, but he called it a dream. Either way, I believe, and this is my opinion, he probably shouldn't have told that to him. I'm not saying he shouldn't have had the dream. God gave him that for a reason, for a purpose. But at least in Scripture, you don't see where God says, go tell your brothers what I, what I showed you. He could have just kept it to himself, is my point, and it probably would have went better for him. But he, he couldn't almost help himself because I think he's a little prideful. We'll get to that more in a second. I would at least make the case he doesn't have very good discernment. He should have sort of kept his mouth shut is how I would put it. But let's keep reading. He's going to pile some more gas on this fire. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? You already got, they're probably thinking, you already got this robe on. Now you're telling us you're going to be in charge and we're going to bow. Will you actually rule us is what they asked next. And they hated him all the more. We just read that, and now they hate him even more because of it. Because of his dream and because of what he said is what the verse says. So his brothers clearly understood what that dream meant as he told it. But he's going to do it again. Let's go to another verse down to 9. Then he had another dream. He told that one to his brothers is what the verse says. Listen, I had another dream. He forgot to add, in parentheses, this one's even worse. That's my opinion, anyway. You make your own mind up. This time, in this dream, the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. So this one he probably really should have kept quiet because, symbolically, in this dream, the sun represents Jacob or Israel, his dad. The moon represents Rachel. More on Rachel in a few minutes. The 11 stars in this dream, as he's telling it, represent his brothers, but they really represent the nation of Israel. It's very similar to a vision we see in um, Revelation. Let's look at that on the screen together. Revelation 12.1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, sun in our verse, sun up on this verse, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Well, if you were here as we taught Revelation, I'm not going to break that whole dream down, but we decided, and, and most Bible scholars would agree, by the way, that 
these 12 stars represent the 12 tribes, and the woman is Israel. So might make you wonder, though, hey, that math doesn't quite line up. Joseph's dream had 11 stars. This revelation has 12. How come there's a difference? Well, in Joseph's dream, remember, the brothers were the 11 stars. He is number 12. He's in the dream, but they're bowing to him, but you've got to count him, so it's really 12 and 12, if you think about it. And I'm not good at math, but even I can figure that one out. So it, it, it's okay. They line up. But either way, once again, I would make the case, it's probably not a smart thing that he's telling his brothers all this. Once again, God gave him that. It's a vision. It, it's for the future. And God doesn't give bad gifts, but he probably should have kept that part quiet because now he's thrown his parents in the mix. And we'll see that here real quick when I read some more verses. Let's read 10 and 11. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him. He didn't like that dream. What is this dream you had, he asked him. You can almost imagine him yelling that, not just saying that. Will your mother and I and your brothers come and bow down to you? His brothers were jealous, and his father just kept the matter in mind. So Joseph's story, I already said, was mostly good. Um, I would put even a number on it, by the way. This is my number, not any scriptural reason, but I'll give Joseph a 90%. He's doing pretty good. Everything we see from here on is more or less exemplary. But right now, he seems, at least to me, a little prideful, doesn't he? So I think when he was young, and that's why I said we'll give him a free pass for being a teenager. Teenagers are full of themselves. We were all one. Weren't we a little full of ourselves? He's just kind of being a prideful teenager. God will work that out of him in a pit and other places. So he's a classic work in progress. But that's really all he has kind of is a negative, and that brings up our second point if you're taking notes. Pride in anybody, me, you, Joseph, anybody, is never good. It's just never good. We're all created equal. God sees us all the same, no matter what we look like, how old we are, young we are, what nationality we are, what color our skin is. Heaven is about equality. There is no favorites. We already learned favorites are terrible. God doesn't have any. He doesn't even like favorites. So pride is me kind of thinking I'm better than somebody else. If you had it, that's what you would be saying. Even though you don't want to say that, that's kind of what you're thinking. That's what Joseph is thinking. It displeases the Lord, and it really destroys our earthly relationships. We've already seen that over and over with his brothers. They hate him, and they want to kill him. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. Remember that city a few weeks ago? It's a not a good place. He was supposed to get out of there, supposed to go to Bethel. He finally did, got blessed. Somehow, some way, they're back near Shechem. I think it's, in my mind anyway, Israel acting more like Jacob again. Remember how he couldn't change his name for a while because he had to get the Jacob out? I think he's having a Jacob relapse right now because he's back near Shechem. Let's keep reading. Then Israel said to Joseph, um, As you know, your brothers are grazing their flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replies. Joseph does. We don't know why they're there. We don't know really how far they are as far as um, Israel, Jacob, the family. Maybe the brothers are just way out. But they wouldn't have been way, way out because the animals would have had to come home at night. Think about what happened at Shechem. A lot of bad things. And I'll just give you one word, Dinah. 
The whole Dinah story was at Shechem, and the guy named Shechem did it. Why, why, why are you even near this place? I really don't know. Um, I think, once again, it's just Israel being Jacob. Let's keep reading, verse 14. So his father says to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks. Bring word back to me. Give me a report. Be a tattletale. But I need to know this. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron, where the rest of the family was living. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? The guy replies in verse 17, they've moved on from here. And the man answered, I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. Okay, time for another backstory. You ready for a backstory? You know, I can't resist backstories. You've probably known that by now if you've been here very many Wednesdays. Dothan is a city in Alabama, and that's not the one we're talking about. A week or two ago, I don't remember, don't hold me to which week it was. Remember I made a main point out of a Chris Tomlin song, Angel Armies? We sing that song all the time. That's not the name of the song, but it's the lyric we all know. The God of Angel Armies is on our side. Well, that story that Chris Tomlin got that from is in 2 Kings. Let's look at it. 2 Kings 6. It says, when the servant of the man of God, and the man of God is Elisha, by the way, We'll see that in a second. He got up and went out early the next morning. An army, a human army, with horses, chariots, had surrounded their city. It looked like sure defeat to all of them. They were outnumbered, overwhelmed, and it was a big, strong fighting army. Oh, no, my Lord, what do we do? In other words, we're going to die. But look, that's what the servant asked. Verse 16, look what the prophet says. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. But he can't see them. So look what happens next in 17. Then Elisha, the prophet, that's the prophet that keep mentioning here, prayed, Lord, open his eyes. Open this servant's eyes so that he may see what I see, what I already know is there. Then look what happens. The Lord opened the servant's eyes. He looked, and what's he see? Angel armies that Chris Tomlin writes about, what we talked about a few weeks ago. A bigger army, God's army, that can defeat any amount of human army. In a way, keep that in mind, by the way. We may see it, we may not. Our lifetime, end times, the battle of Armageddon in Revelation. It looks like, to human eyes, if you read the story in Revelation, there's a giant army that can't be defeated that's going to come against Israel. God's got a bigger army, and they're also more powerful and Jesus will be at the head, and there's no chance they'll ever win. It just looks like they will. God's let them think they will. The world thinks Israel's about to be doomed. God says, no, 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 I got this. Open your eyes, just like Elisha did for that servant. Angel armies are by your side. Do you know there's angel armies by your side right now? God will fight your battles if we let him. But I've made the case before, I'm not going to go down this rabbit trail very long, we've got to quit fighting. We've got to believe it'll quit raining someday. <laughs> we've got to let God fight that battle. It's his weather, it's his cloud, he'll turn it off when he gets ready. I've got to quit whining about it, don't I? That's probably my job, quit whining. Angel armies 
will fight your battles, my battles, our battles. They're on our side. No matter what the world looks like coming against us, God has a plan, and we're going to be part of it. That should encourage us, shouldn't it? No matter what it looks like. So don't worry about what it looks like. Trust the Lord. Let him fight for us. So that's where Chris Tomlin got that. Back to our text, verse 18. But they saw him in the distance before he reached. That's his brother seeing um, Joseph coming, by the way. Look what comes next. Before he even reached him, they plotted to kill him. This is the result of those two dreams. Why I kept saying he probably shouldn't have told him that. Even if he saw it, even if God gave it to him as a special gift of prophecy, a vision, keep it to yourself, Joseph. Now they want to kill you. Here, look what they say. Here comes that dreamer. You almost can hear you know, the tone of their voice. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns, which would be a big water, you know, a, a tank almost natural in the ground, a big hole. Not a well, a giant almost hole. Um, let's kill him and throw him in one of these, and then we'll tell our dad that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of these silly dreams he won't shut up about. I added a little bit to that, by the way. But that's what they mean. They want to kill him over those prideful dreams as they took it. They're tired of it. Here comes that dreamer again. And what they seem to be thinking, I think it's inferred in this text, if we kill him, we'll kill those dreams. Then none of what he said will ever happen. Well, they failed to realize that was God speaking to their brother. And they don't know that in their defense. It never was made clear to them. But it is clear to us because we know the story. We know how the story ends because we win. But it's our third main point if you're taking notes. God's word, God's plans can never be stopped. No matter what we throw in a pit, God can fix it. God's going to fix this part. But we can't change God's plan. But here's what's kind of interesting to me anyway. God's plan is going to go forward. This is more for us, not Joseph for us. We can choose to be part of it or maybe miss out on a great opportunity and he'll use someone else. It's sort of, you know, we, we believe here in Calvary in choice, free choice, free will, not just salvation, but God has a plan. He's going to complete that plan no matter if I get on board or not, no matter if you get on board. His plans can't be thwarted. But I'm going to be the one missing out if I don't get on board. I'm going to have a great time. I'll get to see it firsthand. You will too. One of, the, I think, our biggest regrets, if we were to, could see them, well, we may never know, we don't know that by Scripture, is, man, I wish I'd have done this when God told me to do that, step out in faith. Heaven says there's no sadness, no sorrow, no weeping, so likely we won't know all that. But maybe as we're getting older, even down here, we'll think about some of the open doors we sort of passed up because we were fearful. In other words, God prompted me, prompted you to go witness to somebody, and we know, we know, we know that we should have, but we don't. Before I die on this earth, I could likely remember that, so could you. That's more what I'm talking, not a heavenly regret, an earthly regret. So we just want to get on board with God's plan, don't we? Otherwise, we miss out on what he's going to do anyway, with or without us. God's word, God's plan can't be stopped. More on our story, verse 21. When Reuben heard this, and Reuben kind of had a messy past, I'm not going to get into it, but we talked about him a few weeks ago. 
He's trying to now do the right thing. He tried to rescue Joseph from their hands. Then look what he tells them. Let's not take his life. Let's don't kill him. Don't shed any blood. Throw him in this cistern. Just throw him down in this pit. And then he'll just probably eventually, he's kind of insinuating, he'll probably just starve to death or die down there. But let's don't kill him. Let's don't get his blood on us. That's really bad. And he is correct. He's trying to have it both ways. He knows it's wrong, but he doesn't put a stop to it. So he comes up in his mind with a great plan. Just throw him in the pit. That way you'll get what you want. I'm trying to save him secretly. You don't know that. Throw him in the pit and we both win. It's sort of what he really means. Because if I were to keep reading, which I will now, it said, Reuben said this to rescue him from them, from his brothers, and eventually take him back to his father. So he thought he had a plan to fix it. He's not taking into account his brothers, though. And in this story, by the way, in a way, there's kind of like at the moment out in this field, nine bad sons. Reuben would be kind of in the bad camp because he doesn't do the right thing. Um, maybe he's good. I'll just give him a little bit of it. Maybe he's the good son in the story. So the nine bad ones would be everybody else. And then if you remember the story, little Benjamin stayed home. He wasn't old enough. But this is the same Reuben that behaved badly just about two weeks ago. Remember, he slept with his father's concubine, which was a huge no-no in those days. Now he's kind of doing the right thing. So somehow Reuben has kind of repented, of, looks like anyway, of his bad behavior. He's trying to do the right thing. And what I think is kind of interesting anyway in my mind, he's not letting that mistake of sleeping with his father's concubine define him. In other words, it's not going to haunt his whole life. He's willing to put that behind him and try to do the right thing. For us, our past doesn't define us either. Your past mistakes, my past mistakes, they don't define us. We've got to quit making them like Reuben is trying to do here. But never listen to the enemy when he tells you your past defines you because it doesn't. This book defines you, defines me. We're in Christ. That's your definition. God doesn't care about your past. He cares about your tomorrow or what you do later tonight. Don't let your past ever define you because it's a lie of the enemy. Verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, look what they do. They stripped him of his robe, that long, ornate robe he was wearing. And they took him, and they did listen to Reuben. They threw him in the cistern. It, next part, it tells us the cistern was empty, no water, and so he didn't drown. It's a big, empty pit. Now, think about this. As I say that, think about how Joseph and Jesus parallel each other a little bit. I'm not saying Joseph is like Jesus, a type of Jesus, but they do have some similarities in their stories. Both were betrayed, clearly. Both of them were stripped of their garments. Remember Jesus on the cloth, they gambled for, they threw, cast lots for his garments. Joseph's brothers just got his kingly robe off. Both of them were cruelly sacrificed. One in a pit, it doesn't work, but they're trying to kill him. Jesus was, we all know, cruelly sacrificed on the cross. So there's some parallels. It's almost the way the Bible gives you hints there's a better future coming. Because this is Old Testament. We're still in the first book. God's already given us hints to the redemption that Jesus is going to bring all of us by his death on the cross. The Old Testament readers wouldn't have known it. But once again, we can cheat. We can read the last page. We know how it ends. We win. Is how I keep putting it. But it is kind of cool, isn't it, how God foreshadows that for us? 
the similarities. Back to our text, verse 25. Look what they're doing now, these brothers. They sat down to eat their meal. They're poor brothers over there in a pit, starving, crying most likely, because remember, he's kind of spoiled house kid. They looked up. They saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. The camels were loaded down with spices, balm, and myrrh. That would be like frankincense and myrrh, by the way. They were on their way to take all these supplies, and they were traders. They're taking, taking their wares down to Egypt to sell. So I think it's pretty clear his brothers are unkind, uncaring, pretty much evil. They're able to literally share a family meal while their poor brother's over there bawling and dying, in his mind anyway. So what's, what's going to happen next? Well, another brother's going to step up a little. He's going to propose another fix, but it's not so much of a fix at all if we read it. Verse 26, Judah, different brother that, you know, I've mentioned his name before as being kind of a good brother because the only reason is, what do we call Jesus? The Lion of Judah. Judah has a good tribe. Tonight, he's not a good Judah. He's more like a Jacob, maybe worse than Jacob. You'll see. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? He's kind of saying, I got a better plan. Come, let's sell him to those Ishmaelites that are going by right over there. We won't have to lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother. Let's don't kill him and murder him. He's our flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. Here's what he's really saying. We don't have to kill him to get rid of him. We can sell him and get a bunch of money. He's greedy, big time. He doesn't want to help his poor brother. He wants to sell him for a profit. And he's not so good after all. He only becomes the line of Judah, the good Judah, kind of later. He's out for, the, he probably has, you know, we know the verse, the money is not evil, the love of money is evil. It clearly looks like he has the love of money, doesn't it? He's willing to sell his poor brother into slavery. Verse 28, so when the Midianite merchants came by, these are these Ishmaelites, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver. That's about eight ounces, by the way. And they sold him to the Ishmaelites who took him down to Egypt. But let's think about poor old Joseph. What's he thinking as they pull him up? We don't know, but I'll speculate. How about that? He's probably thinking... Oh, those mean brothers of mine, they've just been messing with me. They threw me down in this pit. Now they're rescuing me. And then I can go back to dad's house and live my life a luxury. Not so much, Joseph. That's probably what he thought, though. He thought he was being removed to be rescued. He has no idea what their real plan is. And, and really, some of this is going to fall back on Reuben. And let me read a verse or two about Reuben. Verse 29 and 30. When Reuben, so he was away from where all this was happening. When Reuben returned to the cistern, he saw Joseph was not there. He starts tearing his clothes in grief and wailing. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy is not here. Where is he now? And he's really saying, what did you guys do while I was away a little bit? Well, we already read his real plan was to rescue Joseph, but really... That wasn't a good plan anyway. He didn't do what I would call the right thing. The right thing would have been to stop it. He's the oldest brother. He could have put his foot down and said, we're not doing this. 
I know you hate him. Let's just kind of smack him a little bit and send him back home to daddy. You know, he could have done something. He didn't stop it. He had his own plan of throwing him in the cistern that now has blown up in their face, which kind of reminded me as I read this of a, a New Testament verse in 1 John. Let's look at it. It's kind of about doing half the right thing. Look what it says. It's a pretty strong verse, by the way. Kind of should scare us. If someone claims, that would be all of us, all of our friends, everybody in the sanctuary on the weekend, I know God. Many people say that, don't they? I believe in God. I know God. But, that's the scary part, but they don't obey God's commandments. That person, this is scripture. Don't get mad at me. I'm just reading along with you. That person's a liar and they're not living in the truth. But this is for the rest of you, I think. But those who obey God's word and truly show how completely they love him, that's how we know that we're real followers. I'm paraphrasing. That's how I know we are living in him and really he is living in us. We're obedient. We're following. We're not just mouth saying, I believe. We're obeying to the, we're going to mess up. We're going to be sinners. We, we are not perfect people. That's not what that verse means. That verse is more talking about people that come to church Look good on Sunday and Saturday night, maybe even Wednesday night. I hope not because you're the strong, mature believer crowd, by the way. You're dedicated. You come in the rain. But in any church, not just our church, churches all across America, churches all across the globe, there's many what we would almost call, you ever heard the term casual Christian? It's a mouth proclamation, but their life is a disaster. They don't look like they're obedient. Scripture says, I'm not to judge them, neither are you. God will judge them. But I think they're going to be the people that's going to be sad. Never knew you. Never knew you. You're not obeying me. But, they, but, but I said I believed. I went to church on Sunday. Yes, I lived a life of sinful disbehavior all other six days of the week. But I, so I went to church. I said that I believed. That verse, let me read it again. If you claim I know God, but you don't obey, God says you're a liar. That should scare us a little bit. We're not perfect. We, don't, we can't. We're not able to obey completely. But just so we're clear what this verse is really meaning, if, if we are living a sinful, disobedient lifestyle that doesn't line up with God's word by choice, we're living what I would call a double life, God's not going to honor that. So our job as believers is try to help people move from that kind of, because it's not a death sentence. That's just where they sort of are right at the moment. That's why we're so big here at Calvary on discipleship. Some of us were those kind of people that those verses are talking about. That was us. Our old lives might have been exactly that. Most of us, hopefully, have moved now into the category of definitely saved. We're obeying to the best of our ability with God's help, with the Holy Spirit's power. If we meet people that are new to the faith, new to the church, their life looks messy, we're supposed to help them get over to the right side of the team where they're guaranteed to enter. That's why we really, really, really kind of promote and push discipleship. We want heaven full, don't we? So our job is to help people get there. So don't judge, help. Help our friends that maybe fall in that category. Back to our story. 
Reuben's distraught because he knows, he knows right now, oh my gosh, dad is going to be devastated. Israel, that was his favorite. He's now been disappeared. I'm not even sure Reuben knows exactly what happened yet. But he could have fixed it. He could have stopped it. He could have done more than his silly plan of, you know, hiding him for a while in the cistern and rescuing him later. At best, I think Reuben partially obeyed, partial obedience. But our last point for tonight, if you're taking notes, partial obedience is really what? Disobedience. It's disobedience. God says, I want you all in. Not one foot in the world, one foot in church, all in. We're works in progress. We get grace as we're getting there. But his goal for all of us is to be all in. Partial obedience is really disobedience. Don't know you. That's the result of partial obedience. It has consequences. It's going to have consequences for all the people in our story. Let's keep reading. Verse 31. So look what they do next. They're going to come up their, their, their kind of evil plan to sell him off to traders in Egypt. They got Joseph's robe. They slaughtered a goat. We know the story. They dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornate robe, the long ornate robe, as I called it, back to their father and said, look, Dad, we found this. Examine it to see if this is really your son's robe. They already know it is because they took it off of him. He recognized it, Israel, and he said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal must have devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. This, to me, confirms how evil these brothers are. Maybe Reuben, he just said he doesn't know what to do, but the rest of them are definitely evil. Because they've, think what they've done. They sold Joseph. They've lied. They've made a, a fake murder scene now. Worst of all, they're dumping all this on their poor old father and going to break his heart the rest of his life, of his favorite. It's almost like, in my mind, they're trying to punish him for favoritism. And it's going to go on a long time. I'll give you a length of time in a second. So look what poor Israel does, the father. Then Jacob, now it's calling him Jacob again. See, he's been kind of Jacob-y tonight. Like I pointed out, now he is Jacob in Scripture. Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. Because there would have been a prescribed time of mourning for a death. His sons try to comfort him in the next verse. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused. He's so heartbroken. He, look what he says. No, I will mourn until I die, until I join my son in the grave. He's saying this is to death. I'm not mourning for the prescribed time. This is forever until I die. Now his brothers are probably freaking out a little bit. That's not what they meant to happen, but look what their sin did. It has morphed into something they never intended, their poor dad is heartbroken till death. And then it says his father wept. Bible scholars have done the math, by the way. It's going to be 25 years before the father sees Joseph again. 25 years of terrible heartache and pain and mourning. That's what this fake murder plot has all for Judah's little bit of money. Eight ounces of silver to ruin your father's kind of heart the rest of his whole life until he dies, or really, finally, he gets relief when he meets him, and we know that story. Last verse, then we're almost done. Verse 36. 
Meanwhile, the Midianites, these traders, they sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. We all know the Potiphar story. That's coming up in the next few weeks, by the way. But let's think about Joseph, the contrast of what he's now gone through. He was spoiled, favored, lived pretty much a life of luxury at the house, long robes, likely didn't work at all. Now he's probably chained, you know, neck to neck with iron shackles to a bunch of other slaves that are being sold into slavery. It's going to be at least a rough trip to Egypt. In Egypt, it gets a little better when he gets to Potiphar's house, but it's a terrible contrast of what he's used to. But let's look about some things as we close to remember, then we'll pray, because this part applies to all of us. The whole time, even when in the pit, even in chains, God was still with Joseph. Even though he was a little prideful, God's not going to hold that against him. He's still with Joseph the entire time. He's still working in Joseph. But apply those two things to us. God is with us in our trial right now. Some of you probably are in a trial. He's with you. He's still working in you through this trial you're in. But he's going to work through Joseph. We know the story about how he, he uses Joseph to feed the nation in this big famine that's coming up. God has a bigger purpose for Joseph. He has a bigger purpose for all of you and for me. We don't know God's ways. Remember, he always tells us, my ways are not your ways. You can't even comprehend what I'm doing. But like I said earlier, if we don't get on board, we may miss out on what he's doing. God is going to use Joseph in a big way to save his entire people group, of the nation of Israel. He's a vital part of God's redemptive plan. But let's tie that to the thing I said earlier. God could have used somebody else. If somehow Joseph wasn't the one, God's plan can't be changed. He's going to save his nation of Israel. The Messiah's lineage has to come out of this bloodline. We'll see that in another week or so. He's going to use Joseph, though, because Joseph, as I put it earlier, is probably, in my mind, 90% good. Think of all the things he does do right later that's coming up. He's a little prideful. That's really the only fault I can almost find as I read these stories on, on Joseph. From here on, he's exemplary, and we know those stories. But here's the good news for us, too. Even if he wasn't exemplary, God would have still used him. He will use us. We're not exemplary, are we? I'm not. I know you're not either, because I know some of you, and you know me. You know I'm not. Doesn't matter. If we're part of God's plan, he's exemplary. That's what matters. He's exemplary. So let's just pray that um, as we maybe are in a trial, that we would endure it, we would be upright, we wouldn't waver, we wouldn't cave to the world, and we would just pray for God to use us as he writes his story on our hearts. Amen? Let's pray for that. Lord, tonight, we love you so much. We can learn so much from these stories in Genesis about how not to behave from some of these brothers, but also how to behave from Joseph and others. Lord, we just want to be more like Joseph and less like these brothers. We want to be your servants, faithful. We love you. We follow you. We obey you. But, Lord, we do need your help. We're imperfect people. Help us to follow you more completely. Help us to just obey quicker, better. We need your strength, though, Lord, to do that. And, Lord, also, we just pray and ask, let us not miss out and let us be part of your story. Open doors for us. 
Let us have the courage and strength to step through them to be part of your redemptive story, just like Joseph is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last but not least, maybe you're not saved. Maybe you've never prayed the prayer of salvation, or maybe you've walked away. You feel like one of the brothers tonight. You want to be more like Joseph? I'll be down front as we dismiss. Let's pray about that. Rededicate your life tonight. Get back on track for God and let him turn you into Joseph. Amen. See you next week.